Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. Misty Winston on today's news talk radio, TNT. Well, hey there, and welcome to the Misty Winston Show right here on today's News Talk. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Uh, appreciate you. Um, uh, okay, so uh, first of all, uh, don't forget to check out the video streaming that is now available. Share it with your friends. Um, you can find it across various platforms. The team worked incredibly hard. It looks fantastic. It's so cool uh, to be able to see everybody now instead of just hear you, although I'm not going to lie. I do miss being able to do my show in my pajamas. That was a that was a good deal. That was a good deal. I'm not going to lie. Um, so, uh, but it is fantastic to have the video streaming available. So make sure you check that out. Uh, make sure you share it around to let other people know that it is also available. Um, also, I've mentioned it a couple of times. The TNT Radio Shop is also available on the TNT Radio website, tntradio.live. Holidays are right around the corner. I personally am panicking. I'm usually much further ahead than I am right now. Um, I am not. <laughs> I am not. So I'm panicking a little bit. I'm going to be going and purchasing some things from the TNT into radio shop you should do so uh, as well get yourself something i'm a big fan of gifting yourself uh, and then get something for someone you love as well um, and also uh, if you could please help us out with the algorithms um, as i'm sure you can imagine most algorithms do not appreciate alternative media so uh, and you can do that by liking subscribing sharing commenting all of that stuff uh, is very beneficial especially over on the youtubes i really despise youtube but if you're watching on the youtube hit the like button comment uh share subscribe do all of that stuff it is very very helpful um a quick note about what we have coming up next week um uh, first of all on monday we have kyle anslone you guys know i love him he's a good friend of the show um he's fantastic he's a journalist uh over antiwar.com and the libertarian institute speaking of which the libertarian institute is currently doing a fundraiser um i am not personally a libertarian but i love the libertarian institute they have fantastic people over there doing really important work. They publish a lot of books and things like that. Um, uh, I don't think you have to be a libertarian to appreciate what they're doing over there. So go check them out, libertarianinstitute.org. Um, and if you feel so inclined, maybe throw them a, a, a little donation. Um, on Tuesday, James Raguski is going to be back on the show. Um, he's fantastic. Holy cow. He is, in my opinion, the uh, he's the guy on the COVID issue and all of the COVID tyranny that's been happening. Um, I don't know that there's anybody that's really much better in terms of keeping track of all the who treaty stuff and all of that. Um, so it's always good to have him here. Wednesday, we have Tara Reed. She was supposed to be here this week, uh, but she had to reschedule. Um, so I'm excited to have her on. She's been a good friend of mine for several years. Um, and so then there's much to talk about. Uh, Thursday, I'm so excited. I'm fangirling a little bit. Sam Husseini is going to be here. He's an incredible journalist. Um, uh, you may recognize the name or his work from uh, the White House press briefing room where he regularly calls out those turds. It's so much fun to watch him. Uh, but he's fantastic. And he's been doing uh, a lot of talking about the Israel-Palestine situation and invoking the Geneva Convention. So I'm really interested to talk to him about that. Friday, we don't have anybody yet. Um, we're working on booking that. Indy's working on booking that for me right now. Um, so I'll keep you updated and posted on uh, a what we have coming up on Friday, but a great week coming up uh, next week. So definitely tune in for that Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern right here on TNT Radio. Um, uh, and just a real quick note about the, <laughs> I don't know what they're calling it. Is it a ceasefire? Is it a humanitarian pause? Is it a humanitarian ceasefire? Is it a cease? I don't know what it is. It's not, um, it's not anything that they said it was going to be. Uh, Israel is still firing on people during the quote-unquote ceasefire. So um, uh, the ceasefire, uh, within minutes really of the ceasefire supposedly taking place, Israel was firing on um, 
uh, innocent Palestinian civilians who were just trying to make their way back to the north to their homes. Uh, and I think at least two people have been killed so far during the ceasefire. Uh, there has been a hostage exchange, which is good. I think that's always good. But uh, and this is nothing new. Israel, um, anytime a situation like this has arose, uh Israel always breaks the ceasefire every single time, every single time. I would be surprised. I'm pretty sure it's every single time. Uh, if you would like to know more about that, my good friend Fiorella Isabel, who's been a guest on this show uh, just today, uh, just a couple hours ago, actually interviewed Eva Bartlett. If you're unfamiliar with Eva Bartlett, you should definitely familiarize yourself with her. She is an unbelievable journalist, uh, like really like a real real journalist like goes to the places she lived in gaza for a long time she has she lived in syria she goes to the places that she's reporting on she immerses herself in uh the situation and uh she has done phenomenal work on a host of issues but in particular on uh the israel palestine situation so uh fiorella isabel had her on uh her channel the convo couch earlier today they talked about the ceasefire the kind of ridiculousness of it and also um the way that, as I've been saying uh, since this thing has really kicked off, that this time feels different. And I feel like uh, even despite the ceasefire, we all know that, I mean, listen, it, during the ceasefire, Israel's killing Palestinians. So I think that there's no question that after this so-called ceasefire ends, they will go back to murdering people. Um, but it, this time, it just really feels different. I feel like public opinion has definitely shifted. There is a whole different feeling. Uh, there's a whole different attitude in uh, the, the general population. I think. Um, and we, we're seeing that in the mass protests. I mean, today, if you go online and look, Yemen, God love the people of Yemen, Yemen, who are also dealing with unbelievably dire circumstances. They have been for many years. And yet, I mean, just hundreds of thousands of people, I would venture to say, I don't know, thousands at least, but it's tons of people are out in the streets of Yemen in support of Palestine. And it's a, it's, it's unbelievable to witness. So um, uh, just keep an eye on this ceasefire thing. Uh, Joe Loria, who's going to be on the show here today, uh, made a good point that the ceasefire is starting at a very, uh, very convenient time right around the Thanksgiving holiday uh, when everybody's kind of preoccupied with their uh, family stuff. And then by Monday, they will go back to slaughtering people. So definitely keep an eye on it they're already the, i mean they're still the, the the killing has continued so uh we just have to keep an eye on that kind of stuff Ugh, it's just horrific it is genuinely horrific and i just don't know when it's going to end hopefully soon i don't know how much more i can take and i'm not even in gaza um all right so don't forget you can follow me over on the tweeters at sarcasm stardust check out the substack mistywinston.substack.com there's a write-up for the guest of the day every day so that you can find follow and support their work as well uh and if you would like to shoot me an email you can do so at mistywinston at tntradio.live guest idea show idea whatever it is hit me up i will try to get back to you and while you're at it why not give tnt radio a follow i mentioned already that we are often algorithmically suppressed. Following is very helpful. Uh, we're on all the major social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. And you can help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Giving you what you want. I want the fact. Today's News Talk Radio TNT. Here we go. An article in Forbes that touches on diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, uh, and focuses on, quote, actively decentering whiteness, end quote, whatever that means, in the workplace has drawn conservative backlash, including from congressional lawmakers and even a 2024 presidential hopeful. Wonder who that is. Here with the story, joining me now is TNT Radio News producer Adam Clark, a.k.a. Ruckus. All right, Adam, what's wrong with my whiteness this time? 
Well, we're discussing the, the, the issue. I mean, it's a big problem happening in workplaces uh, across America. White centering. I thought everybody knew this. Yeah. Isn't that a common term in your house? Isn't this what you guys were talking about over your turkey dinner yesterday? And if not, how dare you? Uh, <laughs> no. So, uh, yes, this was an article from Forbes uh, who probably wishes they didn't put this up there, but they probably know what they're going to. They know what to expect. Uh, the article was titled initially titled uh, quoting here. The, the name of the article was three ways to decenter whiteness in your workplace. But they've since changed that to three ways to transform your workplace to be more equitable, equitable. I wonder why they had to change the headline. Anyway, <laughs> it was written by Janice Gassam Asari, who founded the consultancy BWG Business Solutions, a firm concentrated on DEI. In the piece, Ms. Asari makes the claim that there are endless ways in which, quote, whiteness is centered in the workplace, end quote, while calling for whiteness to be toppled from prominence and replaced by equity and justice. I'm going to quote from what she wrote, quote, white centering can be thought of as a system that prioritizes white dominant culture to the detriment of non-white groups and cultures, end quote. Uh, she claims that there are, quote unquote, infinite ways in which whiteness is, quote unquote, centered in the workplace. Examples she gives of white centering include a 2004 study showing that job applicants with black sounding names for example, Lakeisha Washington or Jamal Jones, compared to white sounding names such as Emily Walsh or Greg Baker. I apologize to anyone out there if those are your actual names. I'm just reading from the <laughs> article here uh, that they got fewer callbacks when they were looking for a job, according to the study. Um, and this is a well-known study. Everybody learns this in school. So this should never have made its way into the workplace, in my opinion, just being sarcastic here. Remedies for the supposed problem of quote unquote white centering in the workplace include inviting DEI experts to quote unquote educate employees about the benefits of DEI, in part because as Miss Asser notes, who I might point out is herself a DEI expert, how convenient, quote, despite the best laid plans of corporate America, DEI efforts haven't been as successful as anticipated, end quote. Still, more than 60% of U.S. companies have a race or gender-based DEI program, according to a Harvard Business Review 2022 survey, which DEI critics may argue is already far too much. Speaking of critics, I believe we know one particular Republican 2024 presidential uh, hopeful who is seriously uh, anti-DEI, and that would be Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, he, alongside Senator J.D. Vance, Republican from Ohio, both took to X to share their respective takes on the article. I will highlight what Mr. Ramaswamy wrote in a post in reference to the Forbes piece. Quote, there's no reverse racism. It's just pure racism, end quote. And I couldn't agree more than uh, I do with that statement right there, Misty. But yeah, we see this stuff all the time. Just ridiculous. They're not slowing this stuff down. They keep pushing it and it does nothing but cause more more division than any proposed uh, acts of white centering could possibly achieve in its entire fake lifetime. But what say you? 
Uh, yeah, I agree. And listen, I am, I, I, again, hate labels, don't like labeling myself, but I am often lumped in with the left. Uh, but this is one of those things that I uh, tend to veer away from. Um, I will say the institutional left, because I feel like the actual left doesn't buy into this stuff uh, as wholeheartedly as the institutional left may do. Um, uh, but yeah, listen, is obviously, is racism an issue? Duh. <laughs> Of course it is. Um, is racism in the workplace an issue like that study? By the way, that study is from 20 years ago almost. It's from 2004. Um, and not to say that it isn't still happening. I have no doubt that that is still happening in certain workplaces. There's There are some people who are looking over uh, applications uh, or or whatever, and they, they may see a black sounding name and skip over. And they may even be doing it subconsciously. It may not even be an intentional thing. Um, I do think that, that we do have some internalized stuff that we need to deal with in this country. However, I think this DEI stuff is um, making things worse, not better. I think that it is uh, only causing more division. It's only causing more team uh, sort of mentality, more tribalistic mentalities. Um, and I think that we need to address these things. I don't think that this is the way. I think that um, putting all of this emphasis on how terrible whiteness is, there's nothing, I can't believe I have to say this, but there's nothing wrong with whiteness. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being white. There's nothing wrong with um, having a white sounding name. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think that there is this weird attempt to make that, um, you know, the villain, to make whiteness the villain, when very clearly that's not the case. I think that, um, you know, are there some things that we need to deal with? Are there some uh, attitudes um, and institutional things that we need to address and that we need to have grown up, grown up and nuanced conversations about? Of course there are. Um, uh, but this kind of stuff, I think, is just and I'm I'm fully uh, convinced that it's intentional. I think that I mean, listen, if you haven't seen uh, the World Economic Forum talks about diversity and inclusion and all of that stuff all of the time. And anytime they are on board with something, you need to second guess it because it's being pushed for a very specific reason. And I just think that um, uh, the the divisions that this, that this causes uh, and, and really, it just it, it just continues to focus things on race when we should be moving, trying to move past all of that. Uh, and it's just it's very frustrating that it is, as you said, like it just it's getting worse. Like this conversation, they just keep trying to shove this stuff down our throats. And it's I think that there's going to be, as we've seen with several of these issues, uh, there's going to be a pendulum swing in the other direction. Uh, and I just think that so often we try to overcorrect on these things and then it just causes more issues than it actually solves. But I don't know, Adam, what do you think? Do you think that uh, uh, <laughs> whiteness is the issue? Uh, obviously, it's just white people. We're all evil. No, I, I, I do wholeheartedly agree with what Ramaswamy said about this, because I believe that these types of things that are, are set forth to our society and presented as a way to fight racism is on its face a living example of hardcore actual racism. And I think we've discussed this here on your show before, how um, the concept, the, the real meanings behind some of these words get lost mm -hmm. in these these fake political arguments like this. Um, and that that's the greatest pity right there. You know, like, I mean, I, I, maybe we don't understand because we're coming from a place of white privilege, but no, we're coming from a place where we, we've moved past all of this stuff. Like, I think our particular age group, Misty, I'm, I'm guessing are similar that, you know, we, we were raised. All of this stuff was fixed already. Everything was fine. We were like we were totally cool with anybody and everybody, regardless of their color, their skin, where they came from. That how much money their parents had or anything we were cool and then 
you know, they had to re-inject this division into it by accusing us all of being racist when we weren't. And yeah, it's yep. just, it's a terrible thing that's been happening here. Yes. Well, and this is one of those uh, cultural issues that I'm fully convinced that they uh, just use as a weapon. I mean, it's not they there's no intention to solving the issue. There's no intention to having legitimate conversations or looking for legitimate fixes. They want to be able to use it as a weapon. And if they solve the problem, they can't use it as a weapon. And I think and you're right, I'm 41. I'll be 42 next month. Um, And I feel like my generation, not to say that our generation like destroyed racism and that there is no racism anymore. Very clearly, I mean, there are still people my age who are probably, you know, at least casual racist. Some of them may be, you know, full blown racist. I have no idea. Um, I have no doubt that that's the case, but it felt like, uh, at least for my age group, my generation, and I feel like such an old fogey saying something like that, like, well, my back in my day, but you know what I mean? It's, uh, it feels as if there was at least a move towards that mentality. There was a move towards, uh, you know, we don't need to talk about this as much anymore. Let's just kind of uh, move forward uh, with, you know, just acceptance for everybody. It's not a big deal. And now suddenly they're making it a big deal again. And again, it feels very intentional. It feels like a very intentional uh, attempt to divide people. And that uh, really makes me kind of angry. But, uh, you know, what can you do? All right, Adam, thanks for bringing us the story. Have a great week. And we will talk to you again on Monday. Hang tight. We're going to be back with our guests here on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Jeremy Nell and Germ Warfare. I feel like they've hijacked some words that have meaning, sustainable and development. Because now if I use the word sustainable, I feel like I'm swearing. When you go onto the United Nations website, so if you go and look at uh, their their documentation, for example, around Agenda Agenda 2030. What you get is the kind of glossy brochure image of sustainable development. And really, when you look through that public-facing brochure, I think it's probably probably a reasonable description of it, of sustainable development, that's all you get. You, you just get the sound bites and you just get the claims about how wonderful it is going to be. The UN states that the agenda is an agenda for transformation of the world, most perhaps acutely its economy, its industrial processes, and perhaps something that is often overlooked, us, our societies, and us as individuals. We are to be transformed as well. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Anticipate potential delays for the morning commute. In other news, a recent government report on prescription drug pricing points to corporate mouth... Freedom of the press is about your right to know. What are you talking about, man? Look at his stats. It's about your right to be informed. Your right to access all types of information keeps us free as a nation. No, 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 no. Today, there are real threats to press freedom. And your right to know about the world around us. Look. Some threats are obvious, some are easy to miss, but they all put our way of life at risk. We must defend against all of these threats, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Justified putting American troops in harm's way. That's a great question. We must protect our right to know before it's too late. Understand the threats. Protectpressfreedom.org. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
All right. I'm very excited. Our guests today are Kathy Vogan and Joe Loria, both from Consortium News. Kathy is an incredible artist, musician, and journalist who also serves as executive producer for CN Live, which is Consortium News's uh, live uh, news program. Uh, Joe Loria is an author, journalist, and co-host of CN Live and also the editor-in-chief of Consortium News. They were both recently in Canberra to cover the trial of Courageous Whistleblower David McBride. If you listen to the show on a regular basis, you know that I was trying to uh, update you as often as possible um, on that situation. That is what we are going to be discussing today. So Kathy and Joe, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you, Misty. Okay, so let's start um, uh, again. I've been talking about this frequently, um, but for anybody who may be unaware of the situation, um, let's can we just maybe do like a brief background who David McBride is and uh, what this trial is actually about? Kathy, maybe you want to uh, do that? Yes. So David McBride is uh, an Australian. Uh, he's been a long time a soldier, but before that, he he uh, he was he did his legal studies. He's a barrister, and he served in the British Army, and then he served in um, in Northern Ireland, actually, and then he served in the Australian Army uh, in Afghanistan, and he, he uh, executed a, a legal role there. Now, what he discovered when he got there was that between two thousand and seven and twelve, there were a lot of reports of um, you know, uh, nasty things going on, people being killed. Um, there was an inquiry started in 2013, but um, he, in that case, he said that everybody was being investigated. Far too many people were being investigated and people who hadn't, uh, soldiers who hadn't committed any crimes. It was just, they were just fighting and that's their job. Um, but there were real crimes that were not being investigated, and that became a real problem for him. He reported it to his superiors, and he didn't find any remedy there. And so finally, he uh, he spoke to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, a journalist called Dan Oakes, and from that came... Um, the Afghan files. <clears throat> so that was a, a revelation. Those are revelations by the ABC and also uh, the Killing Fields, <clears throat> which uh, the APC also produced. And we we have uh, we had the pleasure of having live murder on uh, in our living rooms uh, <laughs> in Australia for the first time. Someone being an unarmed Afghan being shot in the head and it shocked Australia. And so he got uh, prosecuted um, and he, he'd been waiting for years to go to trial and he did go to trial. And we've just come back from Canberra where we were in the courtroom. And uh, Joe, you might want to uh, continue with what happened in the yeah. courtroom. Yeah. Well, he was prosecuted for leaking these classified documents to uh, to journalists. And the debate in the courtroom was uh, it only lasted one week. This was the pre-trial debate. Was there was really on opposing ideas of the role of the military in a in a Western democracy. Is the military to serve the entire community's interests or only uh, the government and the brass? Is it a law unto itself? And the prosecution argued that the uh, oath to Parliament that a, a parliamentarian makes. Sorry, the oath to the sovereign to King Charles in this case uh, by a parliamentarian is different than what a soldier's oath 
to the sovereign is because the parliamentarian is there to represent the public, where a soldier is there only to follow orders. And of course, McBride had argued that that oath to his, uh, in his time to Queen Elizabeth meant that he was to serve all of the public because the sovereign serves all of the public. So by logical extension, he should, as a soldier, also serve the entire public. And that's what he says he did by leaking these documents in the interest of the public. And the government obviously disagreed. What happened was the judge, the trial judge, uh, decided that he would instruct the jury not to allow that defense to be put forward, that McBride and his lawyers could not argue that he was uh, acting in the public interest by revealing to the public what the Austra uh, Australian military had done in Afghanistan. And that was, among other things, to kill 39 unarmed uh, Afghan civilians. That had to be hushed up because he was breaking the law by providing that information to the Australian public. And his lawyers argued that was a reversal of Nuremberg because at the Nuremberg trials, of course, it became clear that a soldier had a duty not to follow a lawful order and, and to reveal such crimes. To cover them up would be indeed to be complicit in the crimes. So that means if McBride said nothing, he would be complicit in the crimes that took place in Afghanistan, according to the Nuremberg principle. But this judge down in Canberra in that courtroom at the Supreme Court, decided, nope, he was going to basically reverse 80, almost 80 years of jurisprudence when it comes to war crimes that uh, McBride had to shut up, that his loyalty was to his superior officer and nothing else. And that's what the judge said that only the jury would hear. They couldn't hear anything about why he revealed this. Secondly, uh, they tried to appeal that, and the chief justice of the Supreme Court sided with the trial judge. So they lost that appeal. Now, in Australia, the Supreme Court is below the high court, which is the highest court, unlike in Britain, for example, where the high court is lower than the Supreme Court, and unlike the U.S., where they interchange this term high court and Supreme Court. So this was uh, the lower level court, Supreme Court, and the justice of that Supreme Court sided with the trial judge. So the appeal was lost. He could not use the public interest defense. And then later that same afternoon, the trial judge allowed uh, agents of the attorney general to enter the courtroom and literally remove documents from the defense. These were the classified documents that had been um, revealed by McBride, who they were going to use in their defense uh, in the trial. So he can no longer use these documents. They were going to be heavily redacted and returned to them. It was at that point that McBride's lawyer suggested to him that he just plead guilty. Well, that's what he did uh, on Friday afternoon. So there was no trial. Those of us who were there were, I was kind of hoping there would be, it would be a fascinating trial for three weeks. But uh, he did the right thing, according to his lawyer, <laughs> was to plead guilty. And now uh, they'll be sentencing on March 7th. And he may just get house arrest, uh, but he faces up to 10 years in jail. Yes. And it's he was really put in an impossible position, at least as far as I understand it. There was really they left him with no uh, other opportunity or options because, uh, as you said, uh, he couldn't present a public interest defense. He was uh, kind of his hands were tied there. And then also the removal of that uh, uh, that exculpatory evidence, essentially, uh, really just kind of put a knife in his in entire defense. So um, and uh, I mean, full disclosure, David McBride is a friend of mine, so I feel like I need to put that out there. But um, uh, yeah, it's it's a horrific situation. And I'm unbelievably frustrating to watch this play out. We have to take a quick break and get some headlines, but hang tight. We're going to be right back here on TNT Radio. Hear about it. We're depending on our congressmen. Talk about it. The people have to stand up and say enough. Now, TNT Radio News. For TNT Radio News, this is James O'Neill. 
The first group of hostages had been released after 48 days of captivity as part of the truce deal between Israel and Hamas that went into effect this morning. The Israel Defense Forces has reported that unspecified Palestinian militants in the Gaza Strip violated a nascent ceasefire after only 15 minutes. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has written a letter to Brussels threatening to use his veto power to block EU funding for Ukraine and the accession process to admit the country into the bloc. Don't miss a thing. Be sure to download the TNT radio app from either the Apple App Store or Google Play so you can easily listen live to us anywhere, anytime. Available right now to download. Keeping you up to speed on TNT Radio. All right, we are here with Kathy Vogan and Joe Loria, both from Consortium News. We're talking about the what was supposed to be the trial of whistleblower David McBride, as Joe and Kathy just explained, uh, that was very quickly put to an end after uh, the, uh, the the trial judge decided that he could not present a public interest defense. And then also they removed evidence from the defense uh, that they intended to use uh, to defend David. Um, so I wanted to ask you both, um, uh, obviously, uh, this it, to me, it's very interesting to watch this because Anthony Albanese, the Albanese government, has um, made a lot of proclamations about how much they care about whistleblowers. They're doing all of this work on so-called whistleblower protections. Um, They've also spoken out in support of Julian Assange, but have done very little uh, to actually protect him. Um, And it seems very interesting. And I think that on the first day of uh, these hearings, David McBride, uh, when greeting his supporters outside the court, said, you know, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, I should have gotten the direct quote, but uh, something like, uh, uh, today I serve my country. My question to you, Anthony Albanese, is who do you serve? Um, And I feel like that's a very interesting uh, question because as Joe just explained. Uh, This is, it completely contradicts Nuremberg. It completely contradicts everything that we thought we knew about uh, these types of situations. What do you think that this means moving forward? Because it feels as if not just in Australia and Western governments in general, uh, we're seeing this kind of shift backwards, this kind of, uh, uh, we're reverting back to uh, a very strange attitude uh, on whistleblowers and on journalism. Uh, What do you think, Kathy? Well, one thing I think and that is worth mentioning straight away uh, is that Mark Davis, when he came out and addressed the press and said David had to plead guilty, he said that there was still option for an appeal after sentencing. I spoke to David last night and I said, what kind of appeal would that be? And he said, on that particular type of sentencing. I think we have to take the time to reflect on what this means. And the world has been telling us through social media what they think it means, uh, the only following orders thing, because it means uh, there's an incredible risk there. There's much more risk with an an individual soldier. In fact, a barrister uh, making a, a, using their own discretion, using their skill. Uh, That's where I drew exception to the um the rejection that the case of an mp is different um to a a soldier david was no ordinary soldier an mp is elected they said to represent the people but a barrister is selected by a long process david went to the university of sydney then he went to oxford he was selected and expected to use discretion and to 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 judge what was a real crime so i think that you know there's not that much risk with david that he's going to make a mistake but there's there's an incredible risk if we let people at the top just give whatever order they like and it's supposed to be a lawful order but joe you were saying this morning that 
it's worth asking if such an order to kill uh, or even just not to disclose is lawful. Yeah, in fact, um, we asked McBride outside the courtroom about whether it was legal to classify a document that covers up, that reveals a crime. In other words, to cover up a crime by classifying it. In the United States, there's an executive order yeah. saying that that is illegal. He said it was also legal in Australia, but it wasn't codified the same way it was in the U.S. So his argument is this was not a lawful order and not a lawful order to cover up a crime. He didn't get a chance to even argue that to the jury. But I think the overall question that you ask, Misty, is what does this mean? And it, it's one more big nail in the coffin of Western democracies. Why? Because it shows that this case shows in the decision by this trial judge and the Supreme Court justice on the appeals that the military and by extension, the related intelligence agencies who classify these documents, that they have no democratic control. They are a law unto themselves. And who is more important in our so-called democracies, the military and the intelligence or the parliaments and the congresses? I think it's pretty obvious in the militarism that we live under, in the in, in what we see going on in Gaza, the, the this United States government, the Australian government, European government supporting an ongoing obvious genocide, and they're getting enormous public pressure against that. Who's running our systems? And it seems very clear that the intelligence agencies, particularly in the U.S., and you could see what happened during the church committee hearings in the 70s, when for years from the 47 until mid-70s, there was no oversight at all. There wasn't even a, a so-called intelligence committees hadn't even existed yet just to, to have any democratic oversight over over the intelligence agencies or the military. And we, we found out was all the crimes of the CIA and the FBI and NSA had committed, they created these oversight committees and nothing has really worked since then. We've gone back to the way it was. There's no, we need another, obviously another church committee. It's a joke, the intelligence committees. So the, and we saw that with the Senate tor torture report when they've spied on the Senate intelligence committee and no repercussions for that. So this is a real blow to again, another one to whether we still have democracies or not in our countries. Can yes. I just quote John? Please, Cooper yes, go here? ahead, please. Yeah. He said when secrecy, is combined with impunity, bad things happen. Yeah. David McBride also said last night there was uh, the, his book launch of The Nature of Honor, an impossibly moving moment when an Afghan woman thanked him on behalf of her community because he had given uh, them permission to grieve for the people uh, that they lost. His comeback was very interesting because he said, we never tell the truth about what really happened. And there's the problem. Therein lies the risk. It, it will always sound uh, legal in, in retrospect. But, you know, he said that we're so arrogant. We're so dishonest. We have killed our own soul by not admitting that we did wrong. Uh, it always sounds like we were in the right afterwards. Yeah. Yes. And that's, yeah, that's exactly the point I was getting to, uh, Joe, and thank you for articulating it better than I was able to do. Uh, but yes, it's, it's, this essentially means that these, uh, uh, these military institutions and these, uh, intelligence agencies that surround them, uh, can now work with absolutely zero accountability. There, there's, uh, who's going to hold them accountable? As, uh, Kathy mentioned at the beginning of the show, David attempted to go through proper, uh, channels, so-called proper channels. As I think, I don't know that I've ever heard of a whistleblower who hasn't first attempted to go through proper channels um but when those channels fail you when, oh Snowden. did he not go through okay no 
He cited Tom Drake's case. Tom Drake had done that and he got oh. nowhere. So he said okay. because of Drake's experience, he went straight to the to the press. Yeah. Yeah. But that's I mean, but that's my point, though. I mean, if you are somebody who is attempting to go through those proper channels, do the right thing, go through those uh, systems that have been put in place to, uh, you know, bring these things to light and nothing happens, then what are you meant to do? And I think that what this case highlights and I think I mean, moving forward, this really does uh, completely destroy whistleblowing. Who on earth is ever going to come forward uh, in a situation like this and expose very obvious crimes? I mean, war crimes. These are I mean, maybe the most heinous crimes on planet earth that we've ever seen. Uh, I think war crimes are some of the worst things uh, that we offer in humanity, unfortunately. Uh, but it, th there's nobody in their right mind after seeing uh, and time and time again in different Western democracies. We, we, I mean, we saw John Kiriakou who exposed the torture program. He's the only guy that was ever punished. We, we've seen Daniel Hale who exposed the drone program. He's the only guy that was ever punished. Chelsea Manning, only person ever punished. And now David McBride. Um, uh, not, I mean, it's, it's just, it, it seems as if this just is a continuation of uh, that trend. Um, and I think that this really does just really it just it's destroying whistleblowing and it's it, it leaves these military institutions um, uh, uh, with a blank check to do whatever they want. Um, all right. We've taken another quick break, but hang tight. We're going to be right back with more here on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. I've been in and around politics for over 50 years, so it takes a lot to surprise me, much less shock me. But I was shocked. Shocked, not that so many Argentines voted for Javier Malay, but that the Peronist powers that be allowed him to win the election. And the thing that made me the happiest for my Argentine friends is the video that Malay put out where he went down the row of a magnetic board that had all the Argentine government ministries listed and all the irrelevant ones. Pulled them off the magnetic board over his shoulder. They're gone. No more. That's exactly what we need to have happen here in the United States. We need Donald Trump back in January of 2025 to streamline our government. We need to move the Department of the Interior actually out into the interior. We need to move the Department of Agriculture to where we commit agriculture. And most importantly, we need to defund and disband FBI and distribute its law enforcement functions to other agencies that have their own law enforcement capability already stood up. Can't have Donald Trump back fast enough. I'm glad that Malay is going to make Argentina great again. We need Donald Trump here to make America great again. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. You ever heard of a polyp? Sounds like a rare species of toad. Actually, it's a lump that grows inside me, your bowel. Look, I'm pretty sure if you had a strange lump growing on your forehead, you might get it looked at, right? But when they're growing inside me, nothing, nada. And the polyps I get can lead to Australia's second deadliest cancer. So, until there's a way to make them grow on your face, it's up to you to get me looked at. Got it? Cutting through the clutter, this is the Misty Winston Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we are joined today by Kathy Vogan and Joe Loria, both of Consortium News. Please go check out Consortium News. I know I talk about them all the time on this show. I don't apologize for that. I love Consortium News. They do fantastic work. Go support, subscribe, share, donate, all of that good stuff. Uh, they do incredible uh, journalism, legitimate journalism. Um, uh, so I also wanted to talk to you. Kathy, you mentioned uh, uh, the uh, support that David has ex uh, uh, experienced from the general public. And I think that that's another thing that is very frustrating because it seems as if um, uh, we're we're 
seeing the same situation with Julian Assange in some polls in Australia. Uh, 80 to 90 percent of the Australian public uh, agree with his immediate release and bringing him home to Australia. And the idea that, you know, you can get 80 to 90 percent of people to agree on anything is amazing. Um, so uh, but we're also seeing that same situation, as I mentioned earlier, the Albanese gov government claims to care about whistleblowing. Um, but I think that what this highlights is that um, uh, not only are our military institutions completely unaccountable, um, but also our governments are completely unaccountable. What the actual, what their constituencies want, what the population wants uh, is very rarely taken into account. Um, but I, I, I think that the public support is obviously great. Do you think it's going to make any impact though? Do you think that there's going to be able, are we going to be able to put enough pressure on these governments to reverse these things? Kathy, what do you think? Well, I don't know. Um, I was rather heartened by Craig Murray's recent article and he's talking about uh, the um, the ruling in the Supreme Court and how the the Supreme Court have have said now that it's not up to a Home Secretary to say whether a country is safe. What I'm what I'm getting at here is uh, I I really don't think um, Albanese is going to have enough influence. Maybe he's afraid to admit that, but where it needs to be fought and where it can be fixed permanently is by such a decision where uh, this decision not to send asylum seekers in the UK to Rwanda because it's not a safe country, that strongly relates to the case of Assange. And, and in fact, uh, they usually just, uh, the executive usually just get it, the diplomatic notes that say, oh, it's a very safe country and we're going to treat this person well. And that's enough for them. But the Supreme Court, look at the situation on the ground, look at the track record. And they're there, all, all they have to do is look back at Berater's, Judge Berater's initial ruling. Uh, part of the reason that she didn't want to extradite Julian Assange was uh, the appalling prison conditions in the United States, the high rates of suicide, even in ADC where he is first destined to go to if extradited. So I really think that we we ought to we ought to be fighting so that that uh, these things get resolved as points of law uh, because it's a more permanent solution. Yes, one hundred percent, I agree, and I think that it's uh, again it's very frustrating. Uh, I, I mean, I think Joe, you brought up Palestine. We're seeing the situation in Palestine play out uh, before everyone's eyes. We're seeing massive protests. I mean, I haven't seen anything like it really. I mean, even the protests against the Iraq war, I think were much smaller. I've never seen this amount of people in the streets on any singular issue. Uh, and it doesn't seem to matter. I think that yes, we have this so-called ceasefire that's taking place right now. Um, but I, it just seems as if uh, th that kind of mass public pressure is really um, uh, not all that effective in uh, impacting the way that they govern, rule, legislate, any of that stuff. But also, I think that uh, we need to speak about the complicity of media. And uh, David McBride himself tweeted about this recently, where he was responding to someone else who said, and David uh, said, absolutely, my friend, and yet some sycophantic members of the media not only refuse to hold the leadership to account, but take down anyone that tries. So many journos are really just apologists and enablers of poor leadership. The people see through it. It's time for a change. And I think that he's highlighting a really significant 
significant issue where um, our media has is just an abysmal failure. Obviously, present company excluded. There are alternative media sources that are doing phenomenal work. There are a ton of people doing great work, but our mainstream media institutions are really just propagandists for power. Uh, what impact do you think that that is having, Joe, on uh, on journalism, on the way that the world works, on the way that these uh, you know uh, corrupt entities are able to continue business as usual? Uh, and do you think that that's a solvable problem? Joe, do we have you? You're muted, Joe. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I think, first of all, that uh, both Joe Biden and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu are feeling the heat. They see yeah. very clearly these demonstrations you just said that are interrupting the Thanksgiving Day Parade, that have taken over Grand Central Station, Jewish Voice for Peace, that have been massive, particularly in the U.S. This is the most important public that Netanyahu and Biden. Biden needs it for his own selfish political uh, survival in the election next year. But Netanyahu knows that without U.S. money, without U.S. diplomatic and political cover, he can go ahead with his genocidal policies in Gaza that are being played out on television for anyone to see. And if you have a half of a human heart, you're going to react the way these people who are going in the streets are reacting. And these guys clearly don't have that heart. I do think that Blinken and Biden are don't know what to do. They see the public going against them in ways, as you said, that we haven't seen for years. And how are they going to react to that? They have to try to find a way to appease the public, but also not go against Israel. They're on automatic pilot. They always agreed, whatever Israel does, they have a right to defend themselves. And as we well know, they have a right to defend themselves on Israeli territory, not in the occupied territories. The Nazis did not have the right to defend themselves in France against the French resistance in occupied France. So Israel has no right to be doing Doing what they're doing legally and this is what i think is what happened here this four-day pause in the war now they were steadfastly against a ceasefire both biden and netanyahu suddenly we have a four-day pause what else is happening over the next last four days in the u.s amongst the public thanksgiving that's the time when families get together and argue politics, right? That's the time when yep. they, you stop working like a maniac in the U.S. and relax and think about the world around you and maybe watch the news more critically and discuss it. Does Netanyahu or Biden want more images of killing on the screen? Or would they rather have photos and video of trucks coming in delivering aid to the Gazan people while you're stuffing yourself with your Thanksgiving meal? You're not seeing starving. You're seeing Gazans getting food out of these food trucks. This Thanksgiving truce was perfectly timed for the U.S. Thanksgiving because Netanyahu would never agree that he said he needs the American public on his side because they could put the pressure on Biden and Congress not to hand over this $14 billion to stop supporting Israel. Without U.S. support, Israel stops in its tracks. They know that. He knows that. Ultimately, the American public, it's up to the American public, the only ones who could stop this war, not in Europe. The U.S. public is the most important player in this whole awful massacres that we're watching every day. It's the American people who could stop. So Netanyahu agreed to this truce during the Thanksgiving holiday and even put out a video I discovered last night. And I did an article about this uh, Friday morning in a consortium news called Thanksgiving Truce. He put out a video message to the American people. Thanksgiving is a great time. This guy, we grew up, he went to high school in Philadelphia. He studied MIT. He lived in New York when he was the Israeli ambassador to the UN. His accent is American. He understands American psychology and he knows the holidays. He knows he needs the American people. And that's why he put out this message. And that's why we have this truth. And people have to see through that. And I'm so glad to see that Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York was uh, interrupted because smart people 
and there's many in America, and I'm very heartened by the reaction, have seen through this BS and uh, are going to continue to fight and try to stop this thing. And as I said, it's up to the American people. They are the only people in the world, the only force that could stop what's going on in Gaza. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think that that really also, Kathy, just highlights the, uh, again, that complicity in the media, because we're seeing our mainstream media, they just um, uh, uncritically regurgitate whatever Israel tells them. And we've seen that play out uh, throughout this entire situation. Um, and I think that it's it's something I know I talk about all the time. I know that you all talk about as well. Um, uh, it seems as if the media landscape is just so, in my opinion, I think mainstream media is one of the greatest threats that we face as a species. I think that the uh, the lying that they do, the covering up that they do, the complicity in these sorts of things. I mean, in my in my estimation, um, every mainstream media journalist who is going along with what Israel is doing right now is uh, every bit as uh, guilty of these well, war crimes. Initially, um, I was on the inside. I worked for six years at the Wall Street Journal covering the yeah. UN. And when, when Palestine was going for observer state status, I wrote many articles in which I said that there were over 100 countries that recognized Palestine. Some even had embassies of Palestine in their capitals. And they kept taking that out. They just removed it from my articles until the day of the vote, when it was clear then that they got the votes necessary in the General Assembly to become observer state status. But I would see how this, my own copy was manipulated by the editors to destroy any real facts about what the world's attitude towards Palestine. It didn't mean uh, I was supporting Palestine. I was acting as a reporter, but that was an important fact to report. And yeah. they didn't want the American, their readers to see that. Yeah, that's crazy. It is insane. I mean, Kathy, what's your what's your take on the the media environment and how that is uh, impacting things like the McBride trial? Obviously, we're not getting the full story on that. We're not getting the full story on Palestine. We never have, uh, and it feels as if it's only uh, continuing to get worse in, in those regards. Yes. Well, <clears throat> Mark Davis did uh, make a comment to me about the contrast between our reporting and some of the other uh, reports. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I think uh, I think there's a lot more to say uh, about the destructive behaviour of the media in relation to Julian Assange. Yep. Ten years of it, and I think this is the reason why such a high percentage of Australians support him, because all that has been unravelled now, and everybody got very angry about it. The number of lies. Nils Meltzer, in his book uh, the, the Trial of uh, Trials of Julian Assange, uh, pointed out uh, 50, 50 violations of due process uh, in Sweden. Uh, and in a piece I'm about to, a video I'm about to drop, I'm I'm talking about deceptions in 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 his his trial or his hearing, his extradition hearing, and the 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 appeal as well. Uh, misrepresentations of the core facts of the case. Um, look out for that because, you know, the, the deceptions have actually, um, if they hadn't have, without these deceptions, there would have been no dual criminality, uh, yep. at least in two areas in, in relation to this so-called conspiracy charge um, to commit computer intrusion, but also um, the they in the official secrets act it is not an offense to republish something that is already in the public domain and what was hidden from the court was that hundreds of websites had published this same material before wikileaks did um but you know they're just so obsessed with um perception management that uh 
actually in the courtroom, we, we heard the argument and Barnaby Joyce, when he went to our former um, um, Deputy Prime Minister, pointed out to that um, that he didn't, he, he didn't publish it first, but um, that it, there would have been no uh, dual uh, criminality. And they just, uh, they didn't want to, in terms of the perception management, they just didn't want Julian to be around anymore. It's as simple as that. And the Australian people don't accept that. The other thing that you have to remember is that Julian Assange, uh, who is an Australian citizen, is the most highly awarded journalist in the world. Uh, he's won about 30 awards for journalism. And to, you know, they tried to say that he was all kinds of things, but worst of all was that he was, and most absurd, that he was not a journalist. And mm -hmm. I think this is the thing that is doing everyone's head in. They can see things in, you know, in plain sight, and then they're being told the opposite. Um, just like Palestine, um, people uh, are very well aware, uh, informed now, and they they don't need representatives to tell them what's going on. In fact, it's becoming increasingly annoying. Yes, agreed. Yes. And I think that really, uh, and I've been talking about this in, in terms of the, the situation in Palestine, I think that the invention of the internet and more specifically social media has really opened up a lot of people's eyes. I think that now that we are able to in real time, especially in particular with Palestine, uh, there are people on the ground in Gaza who are able to um, discuss and cover and live stream the situation as it happens. And I think that that has really pulled the veil back on that situation and has allowed people to see uh, behind the Israeli propaganda, because prior to that, uh, Israel was very adept at narrative management. They were very; they had control over uh, uh, mainstream media in the West. They were able to just uh, inform them of what this is what you're going to publish. They would just follow along and just do what they were told. Um, and so nobody was really getting an accurate depiction of what's actually happening on the ground. And I think that that has changed so dramatically. And I think that that's why we're seeing such a shift in public opinion. And that's why we're seeing the millions of people in the street uh, that we have been seeing because uh, people are fed. Up. I think that there's been a lot of recognition over the past maybe decade or so of the uh, just unbelievable amount of lies that we are told on a daily basis. And I think that people are really fed up. I think people um, are tired of being treated as if they're, uh, you know, too stupid to deal with the truth. And I think that they um, uh, are just I, I just I really feel like there's been a shift uh, and it feels palpable to me. And maybe that's just me trying to be hopeful about the situation in Palestine. But it really does feel like there's been a shift in consciousness and a shift and support. Um, I don't know to what effect that will uh, have. Um, uh, I think that the people of Palestine right now are suffering tremendously, and I, I wish it was enough to stop that. I don't know that it will be, but I do feel as if there has been a very palpable shift, and I hope that um, you know that continues to grow on a, a host of issues, not just on the Palestine issue, but the Assange issue, the McBride issue, on every other thing uh, that we have where we have been lied to uh, over and over and over again. Um, okay, so we are uh, coming up on the close of the hour. I want to make sure that you all have uh, an opportunity to talk about anything that you have coming up, any articles you may have coming out. I know, Joe, you mentioned uh, the, the article you have out today. Uh, uh, what else do you have coming up, Kathy? Um, well, that's coming up uh, probably um, tonight or tomorrow. Um, I should round it off by saying what I think is demonstrated in the film is that the real conspiracy has been between, in terms of Assange, has been between the U US and the UK. Um, so I'd like people to watch that and um, 
that's pretty much what's coming. We never know what's coming next. Right. <laughs> <Joe>. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's very fair. Kathy, and send that, uh, please send that video to me and I will, uh, I will definitely tweet that out as well. Uh, Joe, do you have anything else coming up? Is oh, there yes. any, uh, <clears throat> I want to point out an article we've had up for two days sure. now from Gareth Porter in which he discovered yeah. that the real headquarters that Israel was looking for under Al-Shifa hospital was actually found before they invaded the hospital on uh, April of uh, 14th, that the this was 8.5 kilometers away under uh, the building Hamas's headquarters. Underneath, there was a 30 meter drop uh, into the tunnel where the command said oxygen, air conditioning. This is what they were. They already knew where it was, and yet they invaded. Why? Because they want to destroy all the hospitals there. They want mm -hmm. to drive the people out of Gaza into the Sinai Desert. And if they don't leave, they're going to continue to kill them to make life impossible there. So they're going purposely after the hospitals. And combined with all the, gen the in statements of genocidal intent, more and more UN officials are saying this. Now, this is not the assessment of me or other journalists. This is what the UN officials are saying more and more that this is clearly war crimes and it looks like genocide. Yes. And, and this is something that needs to be pursued by the UN finally and the ICC. Yes, I agree. And that article is fantastic. Please, everybody, go check it out. Thank you both for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. You can check all of this stuff out over on consortiumnews.com. Please go uh, share, donate, all of that good stuff. Um, uh, fantastic work is being done over there on a regular basis. Um, so thank you both. I really appreciate you taking the time. As Julian Assange says, learn, challenge, act now, and do not go anywhere. Timothy Shea is right after this right here on TNT Radio. <laughs>